welcome to all our participants around the globe. I'm your host, Sarah Crow, and this is the eighth Leading Minds Online, what the experts say on COVID, children, and the climate crisis. From March to May this year, the world stood still. The impossible seemed possible. Around the world, greenhouse gases fell by 17%, from Lagos to Los Angeles, Lahore to London, quieter, greener, cleaner cities. The right result, but for the wrong reason. Can we do it again, but this time for the right reason? Can children who've treaded the lightest on the planet now make the biggest change and turn back the clock on the climate crisis? Has COVID changed climate change forever? Our experts are going to shed some light on those questions. And here they are, let me introduce them to you, our panelists today, joining live from around the world. First of all, we'll go to Delhi, to Dr. Vandana Shiva, leading environmentalist. Hello, Vandana. From Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire, Professor Anthony Nyong, Director for Climate Change and Green Growth at the African Development Bank. Welcome. Thank you. And from Dublin, Ireland, climate activist and student, Beth Doherty. Hello, Beth. And from New York, from UNICEF headquarters, Gautam Narisham, Senior Advisor on the Environment and Climate Crisis. Hello, Gautam. I'm going to be speaking to them all in a minute, and my colleague, David Anthony, will be taking a deeper dive in the solutions. Thanks, Sarah, and welcome. I'll be back in about 30 to 40 minutes with a poll question. And then I'll present some of your questions from the audience to our panelists. And finally, we'll have a deep dive into solutions where we'll try and pin our panelists down on some of the interventions needed to address the climate change in the COVID era. Back to you, Sarah. Thanks, David. And a lot of interventions we'll need. Seldom before in history have young people been so fired up about an issue as they have been on the climate crisis, with millions on the march around the world fighting against what is seen and what they see as an existential threat to their generation. Fridays for Future then came to a screeching halt with the COVID lockdowns and activism was effectively sidelined or went online. With an overall reduction of 8% in greenhouse gases this year, it could be argued that these two calamities have now converged, the one chronic and the other acute. And so therefore, have the solutions or this point in 30, 40 seconds, has the climate crisis lost its sense of urgency because it is being overshadowed by the pandemic? And if so, does that worry you? Let's go first to Anthony and Young in Côte d'Ivoire, Abidjan. Then we'll go to Dublin, Beth Doherty, then to Dr. Shiva in Delhi, and then to Gautam in New York. So starting first with you, Professor Nyong, your thoughts. Professor Nyong in Abidjan. Professor Nyong, I'm not sure if you're hearing us all right. Okay, you will need to will need to unmute you there, please. Thank you. Okay. Mm. 
Right, let me let me get thanks to have you back. Thank you to have you back. Good to have you back. Tony, yes. We seem to have lost Tony and Yong for a minute. I'm going to ask Beth Doherty to step in. Hello. Beth, your thoughts coming to you from Dublin. Has the climate crisis lost its sense of it's urgency? It's like the bandwidth on my phone is not strong enough. Oh, I see. Just okay. Like Sorry about that. Uh, Tony and Yong, let's go back to you now in Abidjan. We had a bit of a break there. Apologies for that. Uh, let's hear from you on what your thoughts are about the climate crisis being overshadowed. No, I think we might. We'll 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 hold you there for a minute and come back to you, uh, Tony. Gets. Let's go back now to Beth in Dublin. Beth, your thoughts. Yeah, I definitely think as soon as the pandemic hit, we did kind of lose that momentum that we'd been getting from the climate movement. I think. It definitely has been a situation where global attention has very much shifted from climate change, which we kind of see as like an abstract long-term issue, into COVID-19, which is obviously right in front of us. But I think on the flip side of that, COVID-19 has also seriously highlighted the inequalities that are a part of the climate crisis. And I think from looking at the impacts of COVID-19, we're also seeing what the impacts of the climate crisis currently are and will continue to be. So I think if anything, it's highlighted the need for action around climate. And I think we will need to get that attention back. But I agree that right now, while we are focusing on COVID-19, I think it has shown us the severity of the climate crisis as well and the interactions between the two crises around the world at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, Vandana Shiva, your thoughts, has it been overshadowed and are you worried? Vandana in Delhi, I hope you're hearing us all right. Very well, thank you, Sarah. Great. Um, the COVID crisis was a wake-up call, a wake-up call on the violations of ecological limits, planetary limits. Um, could have been an opportunity to see the connections between pandemics and the climate change issue, between inequality and some people taking more than their share and leaving others out of their rightful share of the Earth's resources, particularly children, particularly future generations. Yes, I am troubled that the virus reduced our worldview to a very myopic view, leaving out the interconnections, leaving out the future and the long-term addressing of the existential crisis because there is no addressing of the multiple existential crises we face. Excellent, thank you. Uh, Gautam, can I come to you now in New York, please? Your thoughts? If the question is, has the climate crisis become any less urgent? Absolutely not, because of the gravity of it when it affects children. This is an issue that will affect them in the long term, probably more than COVID will. And in terms of the time that is required, time is running out to take the actions required to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. But there is also, there is also light here in terms of seeing the same size sorts of solutions that we recognize for COVID are the ones that we require for the climate crisis. We need local actions that empower communities, but at the same time, complemented by a global architecture that recognizes that we must act as one and that we are only as strong as our weakest link. Absolutely, must act as one, as you say, huge cause for concern there. But in fact, the data on what has been achieved this year could be argued that gives a little sliver of hope for what the world can do, what, what humanity can do. Let's have a quick look.
some astonishing, astonishing data there. If you look at one in four child deaths because of pollution and the climate crisis. And some say that these two crises are a bit like putting your finger in the fast forward button. Uh, it's really astonishing to think that we're in this state at the moment. I hope we're going to be able to get Tony Inyong back in Cote d'Ivoire. But in the meantime, I'm going to now turn to our youngest panelist in Dublin. Uh, Beth, you are in many ways a leading mind on the environment in Ireland, even though I think I'm right in saying you're not quite uh, old enough to vote but you do vote, for, vote with your feet in many ways. Tell us what made you take on this struggle, the climate, the climate crisis, and what does it mean to you today to be on a panel with Dr. Shiva? Dr. Shiva doesn't know what's coming up at the moment. So Vandana, you'll be surprised by this, Beth. Yeah, so in terms of getting involved, I think it wasn't I think people tend to talk about it as young people are really inspired and we're so hopeful. And when actually I think young people are very scared. And I suppose what happened for me was I was 15 um, when the IPCC report came out in 2018 and I read it and it then kind of clicked that when we reach the point of no return, I won't be 27. And so obviously that is um, quite shocking. It's quite striking. And it kind of shifts the way we talk about climate because I think particularly as well, um, I live in Ireland, which is obviously a Western country. We talk about it as something very far away because we're not seeing the impacts yet. And we do have that kind of inequality in terms of who's seeing the impacts at the moment. I think we see it as something very far off and actually it's happening right now. It is affecting people's lives right now and it will continue to affect people's lives unequally. So it went from being something you hear about in school, something very far off, to something very real and concrete that I knew would affect people is affecting people. So I suppose that was why I got involved. I know that's why a lot of other young people get involved. It isn't a sense of hope or inspiration it's a sense of terror and needing to do something about this to save the world today as well as in the future um, and on the point about Vandana Shiva um, I, you're on the Irish politics and society course so we actually um, were learning about you in school um, last week um, so that was just a bit of a crazy coincidence uh, when Sarah told me you're on the panel um, but yeah I do have notes on you from my leaving search so that's a bit crazy. But yeah. That's funny you've, 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 you've made history before you know it uh, Vandana uh, and very sobering words there from Beth. But just to pick up a little bit more on this uh, on this activism that you've taken forward in a very historic case, Beth, if you could tell us a little bit about this, the second ever in the world that you and your fellow activists were supporting against the Irish government on the grounds of its failure to live up to its obligations on greenhouse gas emissions. Can you tell us how that how that went about and I mean the Irish government of course is not the Ireland is not by any means the worst offender at all in the world so uh, it really is a message for other countries as well how did that unfold um, yeah so this July the Supreme Court heard a case against the Irish government about how we're not living up to international obligations we're violating our human rights obligations and we're not doing what we need to do to get where we need to be in 10 years um, so I was involved with that with Climate Case Ireland and we went to the Supreme Court this July and it was a very long journey. We had gone to the High Court two years ago and the case got shot down. Um, and then we went this year and the Supreme Court ruled in favour. And since the Irish government had to completely redo all of their climate policy um, to be more in line with human rights obligations and with international agreements. And I think the biggest message from that is that, well, A, we need structural change. We need governmental action um, and we need action to be taken by our governments at a larger level. But B, that you can and you should hold your government accountable for not doing what they need to do. So I think there's often a feeling that I know amongst young people, especially given the fact that we can't vote, that your government is putting forward these plans. They're not getting in line with the targets. They're um, ruling in favour of industrial 
interests in terms of the industries polluting the planet rather than human rights and individuals and that we can be there to hold them accountable through these routes and that there are routes to keep them accountable and that we need to be there reminding them that we care about what they're doing and we will be there to make sure that they're doing what needs to be done. So I think Do you see that happening elsewhere? Um, yeah, so there was a case in the Netherlands, I think, um, a few years ago where it was similar. And then I know the US Supreme Court is hearing one uh, brought entirely by young people this year. So it is catching on. You've said that the climate crisis seems, you know, to be something quite remote for a lot of people. It's like something that happens bad for polar bears and Greenland and the icebergs. But it's a bit too remote and too abstract for so many. Uh, can that be changed? And what can and young people do about it? Yeah, I think the way we talk about the climate crisis, especially, like I said, in Western countries, is very something very far off and something in huge statistics that we can never visualise. Like when I say four million kilometres squared of ice are melting each year, obviously that is it's, it's essential to understand the climate crisis, but it is also impossible for the human mind to visualise a number that large. So we really need to be talking about the human impact. We do need to be talking about the deaths that are happening right now across the world in the most affected areas of the climate crisis. We also need to be talking about climate justice in that sense and the fact that it is developed countries causing the climate crisis, but we're not seeing the impacts yet. And when we do see the impacts, we're going, you know, we have the resources to deal with them. And it is the history of colonialism and the developed nations causing the climate crisis. So I think we need to start talking about that. And we just need to start talking about the social justice elements of climate change as well and addressing that and addressing the inequalities and look at the actual human impact rather than just speaking about it something in the abstract. Because when it's not abstract and when it's not concrete, we don't have that reaction that makes us take action, in my opinion. So it is it, it's to try to make it less abstract. And this sense of calling that you have around that, you know, climate justice and social justice, is that now starting to fade though? Because you said earlier already that it has, the pandemic has shoved it into the backdrop so in, in, to a certain extent. So Fridays for Futures is now off the streets. And so how will you and young people manage to keep up this momentum and make sure the climate crisis does not get forgotten and that it becomes an issue of justice? How are you going to go about that? I mean, I suppose when you look at it at its very basics, the climate crisis is a result of inequality. It's a result, like I said, of colonialism and a result of the exploitation, um, mostly by Western countries. And today, the impacts are still very unequal and they're still highlighting social inequalities. And like I said earlier, we're seeing that from COVID-19 as well. So I think COVID-19 has really highlighted those inequalities and climate change will just continue to exacerbate them. So obviously a bit of a spanner in the works was thrown with the whole thousands of people protesting in the streets thing and that hasn't been something we're able to keep up throughout a pandemic so we have had to go online and resort to perhaps more direct lobbying with our governments but the biggest thing is trying to keep that pressure there and trying to remind them of listen look at the inequalities in accessing healthcare and accessing resources nationally and globally with the pandemic and look at how much worse that is and will continue to be with the climate crisis and really trying to keep that attention there and keep that pressure there for governmental action. Thank you, Beth. We're going to turn now from Dublin to Delhi uh, to Vandana Shiva. Uh, I wonder how how you were how you um, responded to being in the Irish history books already, or at least the Irish students' books. Uh, and you, of course, live between the two of the most well polluted areas, let's say, in the world: uh, the city of Delhi and the other base that you have in Derudun and the foothills of the Himalayas where climate crisis has really wreaked havoc. What has this cataclysmic year exposed in your area that you can physically see and not in a remote abstract way that Beth was talking about? 
Vandana. Sorry, we're not hearing you, Vandana. If you could just pick up again, thank you. I hear you, and I think everything is fine, Evia. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was fortunate to get locked down in my hometown, my home valley, my childhood birthplace, and where the Navdanya farm is. So, of course, in the first two months, where everything was stopped, there was no traffic, there was no car, no one could move. The mountains and the snows started to show. Normally, air pollution didn't allow us to see the snow-capped mount Himalaya. The birds and the butterflies were back and strong. The Ganga, you could see to the base of the Ganges River. But at the same time, the amazing people whose work upholds the economy, those who labor, were totally shut out of their livelihoods. Millions started to walk. I haven't seen an image like that. And it's not over because they had been displaced from farms because of globalization. And now they were throw away people again with no system to take care of them. And Beth talked about the amazing inequalities as it is nearly a million Indian children die of hunger. And according to the Oxfam report, it's going to be 12,000 per day, and it's 10,000 by COVID. But according to the World Food Program, the crisis will be much bigger if we don't address the rights of the vulnerable, and we don't address the policies of protection that have been put in place ever since the wars. The UN system was put in place for the protection of the vulnerable. UNICEF was put in place for the protection of children. The UN Human Rights came out of the Nuremberg trials and never again. And this new inequality and new polarization, for me, is the most troubling part of what we are living through. And because India has both the world with the globalization of IT and software and technologies, we have that world too, but we have some of the poorest and the hungriest people. Every fourth Indian was hungry before COVID. Every second child was stunted before COVID. And I think these urgent issues cannot be put on a back burner. They are human rights issues. And as I said in the opening remarks, the same system that is creating the climate crisis and I would so agree with Beth, this is a result of colonialism, of fossil fuel industrialism, which gave the fast forward and expansionism of colonialism. And it hasn't stopped because that inequality of em emissions hasn't been tamed. And the rich are still both creating new poverty. You know, the billionaires walked away with nearly a trillion during the lockdown. While people lost their lives and livelihoods, including in the rich countries, People are in queues for food. Um, people are becoming homeless. Of course, people are becoming jobless. And these are multiple existential crises. And the roots are the same as the climate crisis. The roots are the same as the pandemic, invading into forests and having the spillover. The roots of inequality are the same as the roots of climate change, because we are on one planet, a beautiful, generous, abundant planet. And we have ways to share her gifts today with all 
and into the future with future generations. It is that blindness to the ecological endowment of being Earth citizens that to me is the deep crisis. And you, of course, are a biodiversity expert, uh, Vandana, and you see the soil, the depletion of the soil. As people say, you can't, you can't eat oil. You can't, you have to have, the soil has to be, has to be nutritious. Uh, what, uh, particularly when it comes to children where they're seeing food insecurity, and Gautam is going to speak to that in a little, in a little while as well from, from a UNICEF perspective in New York. But what were you seeing about the depletion of the soil and how to, how to, revitalize uh, good food, good nutrition, particularly in the Indian context? Well, you know, I saw too much violence around the chemical industrial farming system in Punjab, Bhopal disaster. The children born then are still crippled. Um, the mothers are still having children with birth defects. And most of the people who died in Bhopal today because of COVID were all victims of the gas tragedy of 1984. So I started to look at agriculture. I'm trained in particle physics and did my PhD in foundations of quantum theory. Uh, I've realized over time that soil is the answer. I wrote a book called Soil Not Oil in the lead up to Copenhagen. And uh, on, on the Navdanya farms, in 20 years, organic carbon has increased 100%. Nitrogen has increased 100%. Now, this is the secret of cutting down the emissions that are built up in the atmosphere, bringing it back into the soil where it belongs. In the atmosphere, this excess carbon and nitrous oxide is pollution. And 50% of the greenhouse gases are coming from the industrial globalized food system that is also depriving children of food. It is also creating hunger for a billion people, also creating chronic diseases for two billion. And people are more vulnerable to the COVID if they have prior coexisting conditions. So the food system and the soil is where the solutions lie. And forgetting that we as humans are of humus, that the word human is derived from humus, the Latin word for soil. Forgetting soil is the problem. Returning to soil is the answer. Returning to soil. A lot of these problems, though, were not even created in, in South Asia or indeed in the global south. South Asia, Africa, China. You hear a lot of leaders saying that they resist this, these pressures to reduce greenhouse gases, to basically saying the West caused these problems, the industrialized world caused these problems years ago, and now they must clean it up. Do you have some sympathy or empathize with that, or do you reject it? What's your position on how do you, how, how does it, how does it seem from the global south? Well, you know, like every other part of the world, they are divided north, there's a divide, there's a south in the north, there's a north in the south. Uh, so the two voices are very, very different. But I was at Rio, I was at the Earth Summit, I was working with my minister. Um, um, and it, the South shaped the climate treaty. The North didn't want it. If we have a UN framework for climate change, it's because the South said we must end pollution. And even today, 85% of the post-Paris emissions come from the G8 and 93% come from the rich countries. 
So the rest of the world is bringing 7%. Now, I am among those who believes that in a globalized world, the global polluters are using the South to say it's good for the South. The, the North didn't get rich because of using coal. It got rich because of colonization. The British transferred $45 trillion in the short period of their reign over India, leaving people in famine. So coal is not the answer to the, 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 the richness. Exploitation, extraction, colonization is. And we need to decouple the fossil fuel issue from the colonization issue and show that no matter who uses fossil fuels, there will be emissions. And I believe that since the South led the movement for environmental justice in the past, it should continue to lead, not just the people who, in India we have tribal saying no to coal mines, people saying no to drilling. So the people of the South are saying no to fossil fuels. The leaders of the South need to listen to their people and listen to the earth. Well, clearly we're, we're in for the long haul here and COVID is not going to be fixed with a miraculous vaccine or so we're hearing from the experts, certainly not overnight. And there's certainly no vaccine for the climate crisis. So how can we harness this moment as a truly transformational moment, knowing that it will take decades to develop and deploy all the clean energy interventions? Well, Sarah, as we discussed earlier, this is not just an issue of how you generate consumptive energy. That was the theme of my book, Soil Not Oil. Yeah. When we consume energy, it's a very little part of the emissions problem. The way we produce food with fossil fuels and chemicals which are based on fossil fuels is the 50% part of the problem. And it's the same problem that is invading into forests to grow GMO soya in the Amazon to grow palm oil and destroying the Indonesian and Malaysian rainforests. This is 18% to 20% of the emissions. You add it all up, the production, the conversion of large tracts of forests, the processing, the packaging, all that plastic, all that aluminium is getting mined and drilled from somewhere. That too is leading to emissions and then the huge amounts of waste. So it is by changing the food system and Let's not forget, food is the first energy. Food is what makes our energy. And it's that little bit of energy transformation from the sun when it falls on the green leaves through photosynthesis can take the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, mix with the moisture, and miraculously give us oxygen to breathe and give us carbohydrates that is the basis of all life and all our basic needs. So we have to come back to the ecological roots of the crisis and the ecological solutions. In biodiversity, in soil, our work in Navdanya has shown that through biodiversity intensification, we can not just stop the emissions, we can reverse climate change. And through that, we grow more food, we can feed two times India's population. And we reverse the extinction crisis the species flourish when you grow some biodiversity the rest of the web of biodiversity comes back and if it, and if india wasn't uh, wasn't largely vegetarian it would be a totally different picture altogether wouldn't it but as beth was saying that there tends to be it tends to be a little bit abstract and a bit remote uh, so how can we kind of use this 
go from despair to determination to try to change that because so much of the climate crisis just feels overwhelming for the ordinary human being. Uh, especially if you're in the global south. I'm hoping we'll be able to come to Tony and Yong uh, in Abidjan very soon uh, to ask him, in fact, about how, how it's seen from an African perspective. But from, from the perspective of South Asia, uh, Vandana, how can, we, how can you move from this sense of despair to determination right now? You know, as I saw those millions march home after the lockdown was announced with a four hours notice, 8 p.m. on 24th March, and by midnight you can move. Um, I saw resilience. And I think we assume that those who've been pushed to the margins don't have resilience. I have watched they have huge resilience. They are my teachers in resilience. And they are my teachers in regeneration. So how do we move from despair to hope? You know, I cultivate gardens of hope. And during the pandemic lockdown, I was getting calls from the women. We have a huge network of women farmers, and they were saying, thank you for inspiring us to grow gardens. We thought it was a trivial issue. But we have survived the two, two months of no food around from our gardens, and we've shared it. I would love for the Fridays for the future to take on the issue of gardening not just because it gives us food, not just because every inch of soil where we grow organic is creating a solution to absorbing that excess carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide, and we grew a garden in Paris for a, a garden of hope, but most importantly, that merging with the soil, putting your hands in the soil, and putting that seed in the soil, that's when we remember we are part of the earth. And there's no place we are going to cultivate hope if we don't remember that we are part of the earth, she nourishes us and we must care for her. There is no escape from this law of life. That's a lovely thought, Gardens of Hope. I, I'm going to skip over Abidjan because I don't think we're able to take- I'm here, can you hear me? You are, oh, excellent. Well, let me go yeah, straight thanks. to you then and I'll skip back to you. Uh, you, okay. I'd like you to pick up on some of those issues, please, uh, Tony and Yong, especially around the, the sense of how the Global South is viewing this. Uh, you heard there from Vandana Shiva on the view from South Asia, but from an African perspective, Africa's fared better than was feared uh, when it comes to COVID. And a lot of what you're doing at the African Development Bank is trying to use this as a transformational moment now to really introduce alternative solar energies, alternative greening technologies. Can you talk us through some of those initiatives, please? Yeah, thank you so very much. And apologies that um, my bandwidth from my phone couldn't uh, sustain this conversation. But you know, it's interesting when you say that Africa fared better than it was feared to be. That's usually the narrative we get, you know? putting Africa in that box, you can't take care of yourself. I've read reports that said, during this COVID, dead Africans would litter the streets, the, the hospitals wouldn't be able to cope with them, the morgues wouldn't be able to take them, there'd be so many, but we defied all that because our leaders got into action. The African Union immediately set up a fund that says, we don't want to wait, we will reach out. The African Development Bank set up the fights COVID-19 uh, social bond, 
that uh, for three billion that got oversubscribed in, in less than two weeks, we set up the ten billion dollar uh, uh, COVID rapid response facility. You know, and we reached out to make sure that we minimize the impact. I'm not saying we did not have the impact of COVID-19. We did. It basically uh, set us 10 to 20 years back in terms of our hard-won development. We've seen a lot of issues, like uh, colleagues have said, during the lockdown, a lot of things went down. You know, it, it, it threw Africa into its sub-Saharan Africa into its first uh, recession in 25 years. But we are determined to pounce out of that. We are determined to say, look, we can sit down and allow this to ruin us. So we've learned from the Ebola incidents, what did we do? We have established institutions that were not there, like the Africa Center for Disease Control, manning this. So all of these have made sure that we've not felt the impacts that people expected we would feel. And we have decided, look, we don't have so much resources everywhere. One interesting thing, Sarah, let me say is, COVID came, the world got together and mobilized $10 trillion this year into climate change has screamed for this money for years. Let's do things. We've not been able to get that political will. But what this shows us is that it is there. The political will can be harnessed to make sure that we address issues of climate change. And so having seen that, we are hopeful that someday when we don't have to say it's too late, that we will also be able to muster that same global political will. At the African continent, we've done it. And that's what we are seeing. For us, in our COVID-19 facility, we did several things. First was that we reduced the length of time it takes to process projects by about 90% to say, look, we don't have time. This is death. People are dying. Let's move in there with the money and the resources. We did that. Then we also said, this is an opportunity for us to do things right. We don't have all the hospitals built. We don't have all the roads built. We don't have all the water sector projects developed. We don't have all the agricultural potential stacked. So anything we do, how do we ensure that our COVID response is greened? Renewable energy, sustainable water uh, harnessing, green infrastructure, how do we build this into every project that is relevant that we can finance. So that way, we're demonstrating that financing climate change and COVID-19 should not be mutually exclusive. We can do both together so that we don't lose out on that 10 trillion that has been put because with that 10 trillion, money that was meant dedicatedly for climate change has reduced. So how do we piggy bank and make sure that that 10 trillion does not take us back to where we were, that we're running away from? And to complement what Bandana said, look, the air became cleaner, the waters became blue, birds began to sing. You know what? If Africa, if other leaders, the African continent, a continent of 54 African countries, emits just about four to five percent of double emissions, you could imagine if the others, this is less than what certain countries, individual countries. You could imagine if other countries said, look, we want to match the Africa's ambition. We want to cut our emissions to match what Africa is doing. Those birds will sink permanently. The turtles will be back. The waters will be blue. And what Africa has said is, follow us. 
come with us. We are developing, but we want to develop and remain a low emitting continent. Let's get the developed countries to do the same. As, as you said, just Africa, the sub-Saharan Africa uses just produces just 4% of, of global greenhouse gases, uh, which is quite extraordinary. In fact, there's more electricity used in, the, in New York State uh, than all of sub-Saharan Africa, which was a, a fascinating, uh, fascinating bit of data there. And of course, Africa is going to start paying and it has in many ways already, if you think of Lake Chad and other areas, one of the greatest prices, even though it's tread the lightest uh, on planet Earth, uh, but with food, food insecurity, climate refugees. And is this, is this creating a kind of energy apartheid to, to really sort of put so much pressure on African governments and on African countries now to come up with green solutions to the COVID crisis, but also beyond that? Yeah, there are two things. There are two issues here. The first is that Africa believes it has a right to grow. The convention recognizes it, that developing countries should deal with climate change within the context of their sustainable development and, and uh, you know, in coquetting issues of the just transition, equity, you know, fairness and all that. So the African countries believe, look, we have a right to uh, develop, to grow our economies, but we don't necessarily want to do it the way you did. And that's why we have recognized it and said, and you agreed, you will provide us the resources to enable us have a different trajectory than what you had. So to me, I thought it was a very simple agreement. You've grown your economies, you're rich. Don't sit on these other countries. I've met ministers that told me, look, Anthony, my country needs growth by whatever color because we've been pushing for green growth. So whether it's red growth, black growth, yellow growth, we need the growth first. So we're having that situation where there is some element of uh, sentiment and emotion that says, you have grown this way. You are still burning fossil fuel as we speak, but you would not allow poor, least developed countries to do what you're doing. When you have some of these countries, access to electricity is less than 2% in the whole country, then it's not fair. But on the other hand, we're saying we have opportunities that could enable us to do things differently. We have so much abundance, renewable energy, solar in, in Northern Africa, in the Sahel. We have hydro, potentials for hydro. We have geothermal. We have, you know, wind, name them. We want to use these resources. We want to exploit them, but they are expensive and they don't have what it takes. If you can support us, then we'll do it. I think that's a conversation that is going on right now. It's because some of the well-meaning developed countries that said you cannot do X, Y, Z made African countries and other developing countries go east, go find China and say, look, you know what? China says, we won't ask any questions. We want to do coal, we do it for you. you know? And at the end of it, we have not been able to do what we intended to do. I think there just has to be that understanding that allow these African countries to grow its economy. With that growth will come some emissions. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change recognizes that and says the emissions of developing countries will peak after that of the developed countries and will begin to fall to carbon neutrality in the second half of the 20, uh, of 20, 
2100. That means it recognizes the fact that emissions will peak at a certain level, lower, and then take a longer time to get there. But what uh, many African leaders are opposed to is you're telling them you must get to zero emissions today. We don't want to see any tree cut. We're not supporting trees, but there are some times you need to expand agriculture that some trees will need to go. You need to build some roads. Some trees will need to go on that road. We can rebuild back. So these people are saying we want to develop, but we will develop sustainably. We'll develop in, you know, in a way that makes it right. So that's really where we are, that the division is there to start with. Don't do it. Don't go into coal. Don't go into fossil fuel, but you're doing it. And then there are those who also say, you know what? We can do things differently. Some years ago, when the cell phones came on board, many Africans had not even acquired the landlines, but then they switched over to cell phones. And not only did they switch over to cell phones, Kenya took it up and then created mobile money, Mpesa, that said, we can do these things. At every point in life, we have always had a revolution that addresses the crisis of that day. We had the first industrial revolution. We know what it did. The second, the third. Now we are at the fourth industrial revolution. This is where I believe so much in our youths, that our youths are taking this matter up, saying we are in a world of possibilities. There will be solutions. We want to use what is available to create solutions. We can match forever. We can scream forever. But I'm seeing youth, Sarah, who are sitting in offices and managing large firms with their laptops and drones. These are the walls of possibilities. And I think we need to embrace that and encourage our youth on that path. Thank you very much, Tony. And we're going to come a little bit uh, later on in a few minutes, in fact, to how finance ministers are using this opportunity, as you say, to really sort of leapfrog into the future using the COVID stimulus packages as well. Uh, let me turn now to, uh, to Gautam at UNICEF headquarters in New York. Uh, Gautam, we've heard a lot about how young people have really harnessed this moment. And never before in history could you say that there's really been such an incredibly strong youth-led movement. Perhaps 1976 Soweto riots was the last time. So with 14 million strikers you know, are on, on uh, taking up Fridays for Future in the past couple of years, 77% that we heard earlier uh, of young people saying that this is the most pressing issue on facing them, facing their future, uh, and that governments must drive urgent action. How is UNICEF supporting this children's movement at this time, especially given the fact that COVID is not really affecting children as badly as it is, of course, older generations. Thanks, sir. And uh, just picking up on your last point, I mean, I think it's dangerous to, to assume that COVID is not affecting children. Children are out of school. Their educations are suffering. You see vaccination rates and, and, and rates for primary health care falling. These are things that will deeply affect children and impact their ability to have a better life in the future. And also, let's not forget that this vast amount of money that are being deployed for economic stimulus and recovery as a result of COVID is money that is borrowed from children. And they're the ones who will be footing the bill for this. 
So, and we owe it to ourselves to ensure that this money is being deployed in a way that serves their needs and the longest and the longer term threat that they face of climate change. So it's uh, while it's true that the mortality rates initially of, of children are less, I mean, I think we should be careful and not say that this isn't affecting children. This is deeply affecting children. In terms of how UNICEF is, uh, but, but, but sorry, it's a bit of a diversion, but to get back to your core question of how UNICEF is trying to support the youth movement, um, there was a, 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 on the heels of uh, the, the Climate Action Summit last year, there was, a, to paraphrase a bit of a cartoon, there was a cartoon that came out, there was a group of children, you know, pointing out, pointing at the United Nations and world leaders saying, you have failed us, and a group of, a group of people in suits looking back and saying, oh, how empowering, and we don't want to be that. So we have to recognize that one of the key things that we need to do as UNICEF is not lose the authenticity, the spirit, and not, yeah, and, and not, and not, not lose what people like Beth are bringing. What we can do is provide effective platforms to make sure that their act, the activism in the streets is being channeled into places where policy and lasting change can be done. And this includes for the United Nations. This includes making sure that, for example, through global programs that we do, such as World Children's Day, where in a couple of weeks we'll be launching what's known as a reimagine campaign, where children themselves are reimagining what a greener, more sustainable future looks like. And we as UNICEF can provide them the platform, the global platform, for them to be able to connect with each other and be able to take this and, and to be able to have their voices heard. To be able to provide them fora at the United Nations, such as a COP, where UNICEF, along with, part, with, with, with partners, enabled, uh, helped, helped broker an agreement to where there were 12, 12 governments with more signing on, saying that we need to have child rights as an essential part of our climate action policies. But there's a deeper element to what UNICEF, and not just UNICEF, because we're a small part in this, the world, world should do, is to recognize that children's rights for climate actions, children's spirit for climate action, environmental action, do not happen in a vacuum. They happen when essential rights are safeguarded. They happen when their right to education, when their right to health, their, water, their right to clean water, which are enshrined within the CRC, the Convention of the Rights of the Child, are safeguarded. And therefore, as part of what UNICEF does, I mean, we see what an essential part of what we do is being able to build and, and influence the world, is being able to, in, to increase the climate resilience of services that children depend upon most. It's, it's very hard to say that we will, we, will, we will strike for climate justice if you don't have access to clean water. It is hard to do so if you don't have access to education, the type of education that, that not only talks about environmental sustainability, but also talks about what some of the children who are the most affected in the event of disasters can do in the event of a disaster. Right. So it's safeguarding the essential rights is also key. And as you say, the, the, this, is, this is really borrowing from children's future, the money that has been created for stimulus packages that wasn't available for climate crisis, as we heard from Tony and Yong, is now available for this, but it's, it's against time, isn't it? And you also mentioned the Convention of the Rights of the Child, the CRC, uh, and some climate activists have actually said, like Amnesty International, for instance, they've said that it's the greatest intergenerational human rights violation of our time, and it challenges the very moral courage of our organizations, our institutions, our leaders, uh, and, you, you know, the, the CRC is not a blunt weapon, and some have used the Convention of the Rights of the Child, which, of course, is ratified by most, gov most government countries in the world, uh, and some have used this as a way to change and to force change uh, through courts of law. You, talk, you heard earlier about the example in Ireland. Um, can you tell us about a few other cases 
I believe there was one in Norway not so long ago, and young people really working through the mayors, through COP, as you mentioned, and using these instruments, uh, these tools, to really push for a, a change on, in violation of their rights and protecting their rights. Absolutely, and Beth has already outlined some fantastic examples of how you can use the legal system to, as, as, as a way of, of, of asking governments to, to act based upon their obligations. And the CRC is essentially, it's a moral document too. It talks about the moral obligation of countries. And it's a, here it's also important to recognize that the CRC is you know, one of the few univer, almost universal human rights treaties that explicitly recognizes the, the, right of a child, the right of a child to a clean environment within the context of health and education and water, for example. And therefore, it is a powerful weapon, but like many things in climate, in climate action, it is not a silver bullet. Some of the countries that have the most, most powerful environmental laws in the world have the most polluted ecosystems. And therefore, we need other things as well. I mean, we, of course, we need that moral obligation. We need the ability to be able to use the legal system with enshrined in the CRC. But we also need, on the back of that, policies and budgets, for example, as Professor Anthony was talking about, that essentially that, this, that link this wonderful opportunity that we have to make sure that in responding to the short-term threat of COVID now, we're not squandering the ability to respond to the much greater threat of the future. Thank you very much, Gautam. I know we're running a bit short on time because I know Vandana Shiva has to leave, but I'm going to pass now to David Anthony, who's been looking at some of the questions that are coming in, and we'll also present a poll uh, to the audience. Over to you, David. Thank you, sir. What a fascinating discussion. It's such a shame that we have to kind of detail it a little bit. Um, I'm going to take the poll question, so if, I, if our producers can put it up, and we're going to ask that to the audience right now. Okay, so if you were a policymaker in a middle-income country, how would you make sure that both these momentous challenges, that challenges that of tackling COVID and the climate crisis, the first one acute and the second one chronic, are given equal attention? Would you A, make sure every stimulus package has a greening and recycling element, such as PPEs being recycled and masks, etc.? B, stop all fossil fuel production immediately and use resources for health interventions? Or C, create a climate disaster plan that includes mini lockdown circuit breaking measures with permanent changes to alternative transport and energy systems? So, if you could vote on that as we seamlessly actually go into our final part of the uh, particular webcast when we ask a few questions from the audience and we finally give the panelists the final word to think about solutions. Um, in terms of the questions from the audience, we, we noticed that the questions have been mostly asked by you, Sarah, and answered by our panelists. However, there is one, I think, to you, Vandana, that I'm gonna ask you specifically, uh, if you're still with us, um, which is about urban gardens. A panel, uh, 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 an audience member said, how do we get gardens in urban centers? But then are you still there? No, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, um, uh, uh, another question that we had was really about water scarcity. And I'm gonna ask that to you, Gautam, uh, in particular. In a world which is, uh, you know, water is increasingly scarce, um, how do we, coincide that or work that with the, the need for more intense hygiene 
and hand washing to fight the COVID crisis. And David, yeah, and thank you for bring, bringing attention to that particular issue because it's uh, it's almost a false choice to say that by that, that it's almost a false choice to say that you know water resources will be required for hand washing rather than rather than for climate response and you need to safeguard the two. There are by ensuring that we have systems that conserve water, that reduce waste, that that that, that use it more effectively, that 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 enable ways for communities and countries to be able to store it and use it effectively. You are targeting both the ability to produce to have this resources for hand washing, as well as to ensure that there, that water resources are less pressured for the climate crisis of the future. So. In, and I think Professor Anthony alluded to it, it's critical to ensure that the investments that we're doing in this COVID recovery go to precisely things like that. That not just not, not only they don't not only have our ability to deal with the climate crisis, but also enable our ability to deal with COVID now. Thanks, Gautam. Professor Anthony, um, I'm going to ask you a question about the money. I mean, the, you, you talked about the 10 trillion. There's been an enormous amount of money that has been appeared to fight COVID. Uh, how do we exactly get that again to fight climate change? What is needed for finance ministers in particularly to support some of these plans to actually revitalize uh, our action against climate change? Yeah, thank you very much. I think um, let's break it down a little bit. The first is the timing. Africa right now needs between seven and $15 billion this year to address its impact. We think that money is much, but when we look at what will happen in the next 10, 20 years, we see that it will completely dwarf what we are looking at today. The more, the longer we go, the more the intensity and magnitude of this impact, what you could have addressed with 5 billion today would probably need 50 to address as the time goes on. So for us, I believe that the finance ministers recognize this. The first thing we are trying to do at the African Development Bank is to decouple growth from energy intensity. You don't need that. You can grow without necessarily growing your energy intensity so much. How do we find that path? This is what the ministers of finance are doing. What investments can they make you know, that would allow them to reap the benefits of uh, addressing climate change. I do not believe, frankly, that every cent we need to fight COVID, or sorry, climate change must come from external sources. No, this is about our development. If we do some basic things right, if you create the enabling environment, the private sector comes in. You deal with issues of corruption, you deal with all manner of things, the private sector comes in. 75% of the resources we need to deal with climate change will come from the private sector. But the private sector does not just go anywhere. They go to where there's stability, where there are policies, where there's rule of law, that they know that they can be protected. If we provide those, then I think we can attract the private sector to come in. If the finance ministers not, stop seeing climate change as an economic, sorry, as an environmental issue, push it to the ministers of environment, who in most countries are always the least on the pecking order of ministers. You know, until they began to see this as economy-wide issues. We're seeing the devastations in, in, from Hurricane Ida last year in Mozambique, in Zimbabwe, and so on. 
led to destruction of two billion worth of investment infrastructure. That's not environment. That is now an economy-wide issue. We have seen uh, public expenditure displacements. We are countries that were struck by either the drought in South Africa or the hurricanes or the floods now had to pull resources because they don't have this money sitting somewhere waiting. You take them from the education budget, you take them from the energy budget, you take them from the hospital budget to address rescue issues as aftermaths of environmental issues. You realize that that is money wasted. You cannot meet your targets in education, you cannot meet your targets on transportation and energy because you've moved these resources. How can we get the finance ministers and ministers of planning, which many of them are doing, that we can upstream build resilience into our project. When you do that, the destructions will be minimized. We can then sit on those who cause the pollution. It's normal human rights that the polluter pays. If you cause the pollution, please sit on the table and see how you can pay. Developed countries made promises, $100 billion every year by 2020 will be provided to developing countries. 11 years ago, 2020 seemed it would never come, but here we are, this is 2020, and the money is not on the table. So how can we encourage partners to please uh, respect their pledges and fulfill them? Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Before I go to Beth, I'm gonna ask our producers to put up the poll question, because Beth, I wanna give you the final word from our panelists. Uh, so if you're a policymaker of a Lincoln country, how would you make these decisions? What we see here is that uh, the, the, the choice of most people was to create a climate disaster plan that includes mini lockdowns and circuit breaking measures with permanent changes to transport systems. And I think that's an interesting one. And second, there was make every stimulus package have a green and a recycling element. So um, uh, interesting results there. Beth, final word, Beth. Uh, some questions have been coming in and I'm just going to summarize them, which is, you know, um, governments have been shown to be powerful through COVID. They've been able to make changes that have completely uh, changed the way that we move and produce and consume. So how do we, how do you think, because your generation is going to suffer this crisis longest and hardest, how, what do you think would need to be the game changer that we can learn from the COVID crisis that we can apply to the climate? Yeah, I mean, I think this has been touched upon um, by the other panellists as well, but COVID-19 really did show us that governments are capable of getting their acts together and they're capable of taking very large structural changes to make a genuine change in the way we live our lives and the way that we function as an economy and as a society. So I suppose the biggest takeaway is that that action for the climate crisis is possible as well. And it isn't just possible, it is entirely necessary. So we're living in these 10 years where we have the chance to take action. And what we need to do is learn the lessons from COVID-19, learn the way inequalities interact with our society and look at how we can tackle those inequalities at the root and listen to the experts, listen to the economists, the scientists, the sociologists that understand, I'm so sorry, I'm in school, so the bell's going off, and understand where inequalities come from and um, how they interact with our society. And I suppose like these 10 years, we're really faced with the decision, you know, we talked about how like I'm learning history in school. In 10 years time, we're faced with the options of when someone's studying the decade of 2020 in the future, are they going to look back and see, well, this crisis was here and action wasn't taken? Or will they look back and see that we as a society did what was necessary to preserve our futures? And I think that is the question we have to answer. And we can learn the lessons around inequality and how we interact with society from COVID and bring those forward into climate action. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Beth. Thanks, Gautam. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Beth. Oh, back to you, Sarah, for the final word. <laughs> I think we were saved there by the bell uh, from Beth's <laughs> <that's> school <laughs> bell ringing. So it was perfect timing. And thank you all to our panelists. Sorry we had to lose uh, uh, Professor Tony and Yong at one point, and thank you for getting yeah. back online at that time. Uh, and we lost um, Dr. Shiva along the way, but we had most of her for most of the time. Thank you to the three others who are still with us. Excellent panel. And join us again in three weeks' time on Thursday, the 12th of November, same time, same place, as it were, for Leading Minds Online, and where we're going to be looking at fake news, hate speech, and the infodemic and its impact on, on children. Thanks very much, and over and out from all of us at Leading Minds.